6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 John. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now, John always speaks of himself as the elder, so that's understood in all three pieces here. But this is unto the elect lady. This turns out to be the central mystery of the evening. Who is he writing this to? Someone called the elect lady. And uh, so who is she? This identity is the primary mystery of the letter. And uh, kuria is a strange word. In the masculine, it represents Lord. This is the only place we have it in the feminine, as if it's a proper name, is one conjecture. Kuria, the lady. And uh, the uh, electi is is strange use here because it's never assigned to any other individual in the New Testament as a single predicate, except in one place in Romans 16, 13, it refers to someone that's chosen in the Lord. It's a strange word. It's a very strange construction. It's given given all kinds of scholastic focus because there are no precedents, there's no usage to to lean on. The view of Curia is taken by some as a symbolic description of the Christian church. And that, has, that view has occurred consistently since as early as Jerome. And if you study commentaries, and I've been through dozens and dozens of them, from Jerome on, virtually all commentators assume one of two things. Either that's an idiom of the church, and I'll show you why I think most of us would reject that for some other reasons, or it's some specific prominent person in the congregation at Ephesus. Period. That's as far as they go. And I have waded through commentary after commentary, and I'm startled to find no one even discusses the conjecture I'm going to put on the table here. And it's just a conjecture, but you can, you'll can you draw your own conclusions here. Uh, Jerome uh, speaks of it way back, and I, you don't have to go through all these. They're in your notes if you want them then. And uh, incidentally, more recently, commentaries, Harris, Marshall, Plummer, Stedman, Vines, McGee, Wearsby, Walvoord, and other modern commentaries, make no mention other than those two views. And uh, now, the view of Jerome that this, uh, uh, that, that, that this term refers to the believers as children of the church, that may be comfortable to Jerome, who is Catholic in his orientation, but we are not children of the church. We're children of God. Big difference, okay? So that idiom is not comfortable to any non-Catholic, obviously, for a lot of reasons because it flies in the face of scriptural usage. We are children of God, not children of the church. See, the church is always presented as a virgin and, and the bride and so forth, which is in con- it would be contradiction to use that, use that as an idiom. It's also very significant that this word does not appear 
elsewhere in this signification. And there's a further allusion we'll come to at the very end of the epistle to the sister of the elect lady. So it argues that she's a literal person because she has a sister that's referenced actually twice in the letter. So that, would, that should be fatal to the Jerome view here, right? Okay, so far we're in good shape. Now, I'm going to suggest an alternative assumption that with one small exception I found back in 1850, I can't find, I expected to me this alternative presumption is the most, the first play, first thing I would have assumed. And I expected to find all kinds of discussion to at least include or rebut that. They don't even mention it, which puzzles me, frankly. See, the, the, second, the, the, the second view is that it's an individual, probably a prominent lady in the church. No problem so far. This seems evident from a straightforward reading of the letter. The writer knows her sister and her sister's children. So it sounds like, you know, real people. If this view is correct, it's the only book in the Bible specifically addressed to a woman, by the way, which is kind of interesting. Now, it's true that John uses a plural in a couple of places and as an individual in a handful of places. That creates some confusion. The fact that he embraces others as well in passing doesn't alter the intended addressee, though. Don't get confused by that. The family of the elect lady is clearly in view in this epistle. Are we together so far? So those are the two conjectures. There is a third one. And if I ask you who in the entire Bible is the most elect lady in the Bible. Who would you suspect I'm talking about? Only one. Only one as the most elect lady, right? And that's the prima facie suggestion uh, that the recipient of this letter is none other, is the most elect of all women. The very one that Jesus entrusted to John's personal care in the first place. Mary, the mother of Jesus. In John 19, that takes place. And by the way... In the very verse that's mentioned there, a verse later, uh, see, John 19, Gospel of John 19, from 25 to 27 deals with this. In verse 25, it makes allusion. Her sister was standing there with Mary, by the way. Okay, that was the wife of Cleopas, by the way. That takes some study to come to that, but I'll let that go here. But what puzzles me is this view. I'm not pushing it. I'm just surprised it's not discussed by anybody. But the more I study it, I think... I can come close to proving it had to be Mary from the text itself. And I'll show you why as we go here. There's one exception back in 1833. There's a, in the German, there's a, a commentary published in 1884. See what place I can find it. Anyway, so this is most Bible believers from their, you know, because of their revulsion to the tragic and heretical deification of Mary by the Roman Catholic Church, tend to go the other way and dismiss her and ignore her situation and predicament. And, uh, and, you, and there, there's a very dismissive allusion at her prompting at the wedding of Cana, you may recall, where she tries to ask Christ to do something. And he's sort of, he's not rude, but he, you know, what have I got to do with you kind of thing. He then gives instructions, but you notice even there there's a, a, a dismissiveness. And we find that several times in the Gospels, where her motherhood later is sort of a, a footnote. It's, it's, it's not doesn't give her any leverage in any of the situations. See, we know so little of her subsequent history from the Scriptures, and there's just, just minimal allusions in the book of Acts, once or twice is all. 
So she apparently remained in the care of John in his retirement in Ephesus. Now this would imply too that 2 John may have been written much earlier than any of the things because she would be, you know, approaching a century old by the, by the time you get to Patmos and all that. See, most of what's published by the Roman Catholic Church has been contrived by subsequent popes to promote their doctrinal heresies. And there are many good histories there. You have to hunt for them. If you have a copy of Haley's Bible Handbook that was done before the Billy Graham edition, it has a, a section on the whole history of church that's worth having. Um, there's also a, a Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, which uh, is quite a very doc interestingly documented history. But the elect lady is loved in the text, we'll look here in a minute, by all, by all they that have known the truth. Now that's another strange condition. What person is loved by anyone that knows the truth? That includes a lot of people, you know. And uh, who else could this fit? See, this seems to point to something far more than just some prominent, uh, you know, personage in the Ephesian church. But if my conjecture is correct here, this places an entirely unique complexion on the entire letter. And it also gives us some insights that we would miss otherwise as we go here. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Whoops. What is verse 2 saying? Is it talking about truth as some kind of intangible concept? No, it dwells in us. What do you suppose he's referring to? Well, let me ask you another question. What does John open his gospel with? A title of Jesus Christ called the Word. And, he, and the Word that, that, that all through his writings, not just the gospel, also in the book of Revelation. You know, the Word is a title of, of Christ. I'm going to suggest the possibility that the word truth here is a title of Christ. He's using it that way, in the same way. The elder elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. What truth will be with us forever? Some aspect of something that's not false? No. The truth is Christ. I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Good for you. And the elect and her, uh, the elder and her children. She's referenced several times in this letter. She's got children. This should make the case sort of unequivocal. Mary's sister was also at the cross when John was called to take Mary under his provision. Whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all they have known the truth. See, most expositions of this letter highlight the prominence of truth in concert with love as the keynote of the letter. And John used the word truth five times in the first four verses. He uses the word love four times. Hear the word of the Lord, you see in Hosea 4.1, by the way. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, no mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. See, if you take love away from truth, you don't have Christian love. Real love always operates within the sphere of truth. So what is truth, Pilate said. Remember how cynical he was. Jesus answered that back in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. 
So the word the truth suggests a personal appellation. The truth dwells in us and shall be with us forever. John is using it, I believe, as a title of Jesus Christ, just as he so often used the word logos, the word, in John 1, 1 John 5, 7. We'll find out when we get to 1 John, and in Revelation 19, 13. And so, okay. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us shall be with forever. In 2 John, uh, uh, next verse, verse 3. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Interesting that John sticks that in there too. Reminding the recipient that Jesus is the Son of the Father. Not just your son, Mary. See, that's the point. Grace, mercy, and love. By the way, could you, if I asked you, write a short reflective paper on the distinctives between grace, mercy, and love? Aren't you glad this isn't a written quiz right now? Okay. Now, Ephesians 2 combines all three of these things, grace, mercy, and love. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And he goes on, as you know. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, you won't get those two confused, now will you? Love is that in God which existed before he would care to exercise mercy or love. The preceding condition, in effect, according to Lewis Barry Schaefer. I think that's good. J. Vernon McGee says, It is interesting that love never saved a sinner. Uh Uh-oh, wow. The love of God caused God to move in the direction of mercy and grace. It caused him to exercise mercy and grace. Does that help? Okay. Romans 3.16, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. See, it, it satisfies his holiness. Salvation is not only an expression of the love of God, it is an expression of the justice and righteousness of God. And that's why I'm so fond of this acronym by Hal Lindsey. I love it. Grace, he suggests, is an acronym for God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It's Christ's sacrifice that made it possible for the Father to have fellowship with us because we're sinners. We're unacceptable in His presence. Not anymore because Christ paid the bill. So we win by that, obviously. Surprising to many, God also won. It made it possible for Him to embrace us. Wow. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So God could do that without violating His righteousness. Moving on. Grace be with you, mercy, peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, and truth and love. Son of the Father. Interesting emphasis. He emphasizes the paternity. Son of the Father. This is another of those passages that links and equates the Father with the Son. The paternal evidence would also have a very specific implication for Mary. Can you imagine the burden that Mary had to endure throughout her entire adult life? from that cloud of ostensible illegitimacy that was imputed to her first pregnancy. She had to live with that all her life in a small town, in a Jewish culture that regards that as a a sin worthy of death. And uh, remember the aspersions that the Pharisees cast at Christ in John 8? We're not the born of fornication. Well, he before that, in a few more verses, he explains their parenthood a little more clearly. 
you are the son of the devil. So that, he, that, he, he discusses their parentage and response. That was quite a, when you read John 8, set aside the politeness of the King James. Understand the tensions that are really there. And don't overlook the childhood insights in Psalm 69, which describes the, the pain that Jesus had to endure where the drunkards made up songs about him down at the local tavern because he was an, apparently an illegitimate child and so on. Psalm 69, verses 7 to 12 are very illuminating if you haven't discovered that yet. First John 2, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. I and my Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He's the voice of the burning bush, he declares in John 8. In each of these instances, the leadership understood what he was claiming. They understood when he was, uh, they tried to stone him for blasphemy. In fact, that's why they killed him. They crucified him. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. So John is saying to the lady that he was delighted when he found out their, her, found of her children walking in truth. Not all of them, some of them. Of thy children. See, Jesus was raised in a family of at least seven, five sons and two sisters. He had four brothers and other, four half-brothers. James and Jude became believers after us. In fact, they wrote books in the New Testament that bear their names. Jesus appeared to James specifically after the resurrection. But can you imagine how James and Jude found out that the guy they'd lived with all those years wasn't some kind of nut. He really was God. Boy, they must have had some interesting reflections as you reflected back then that the nuances you get when you live with somebody, the glints, the reactions, the... The, the sense of humor, whatever. must have been an interesting situation. And by the way, the Greek action indicates some of thy children, not all of them, in the, in the of thy children. Found of thy children. Okay, walking in truth. In all these three letters, love and truth must be practiced, walked, if you will. To walk in truth means to obey it. It's easier to study truth, even argue about truth, than it is to actually obey it. Knowing the truth is more than giving assent to a series of doctrines. It means the believer's life is controlled by a love for the truth and a desire to magnify the truth. Praise God. See, that's why we believe the third commandment has more to do than it does vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the king, you need to be prepared to represent him competently and faithfully. Verse 5, we're making good progress here. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which, that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Another clue here. This lady was with him in the beginning, at the beginning of the ministry. That doesn't make sense. Not as though I wrote a new commandment under thee, but that which we had from the beginning. You see the partnership implied there, that we love one another from the beginning. She was not a latecomer. She was there from the beginning. The we carries a provocative joint identity here too. Love is a commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments. Real love is a choice, not an emotion. I choose to love you. And when I obey, I do what God tells me to do. And he continues, And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as ye have you heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. See, we should not presume that any of us are beyond the need for exhortation or encouragement. The writer here is encouraging her. Well, if that's Mary, well, she's the mother. No, wait a minute. What makes you think that Mary... See, dismiss the two extremes. 
She's not deified like the Catholics, but she shouldn't be disparaged like the Protestants typically overlook her. She's a human being with real problems. Can you imagine the pride problem she has? She's not presume that she's beyond the need for exhortation, for encouragement. That's what he's giving her here. You should walk in it. Why should Mary, the very blessed but very human believer, be any exception? Mary was subject to the same frailties as all of us. Pride and doubts. And thus also needed frequent encouragement, counsel, and perhaps exhortation. That's the suggestion. Gives us a, makes her more real, doesn't it? More alive. See, a tendency toward pride would certainly be her serious challenge. She's the most blessed of all women who ever walked the earth. Think about it if you were her. How could you help but not feel <laughs> some, somewhat of an elite? Huh? And yet, wow. What would be her thorn in the flesh, to use Paul's phrase? See, both truth and love can be perverted. And in view of the onslaught of the Gnostic heresies and doubts, they may well have brought unique challenges for Mary particularly. That her son really wasn't human, that he really some kind of phantom, and all these things would strike especially uh, in her heart. So let's put Mary in perspective. You know, Simeon, his uh, hymn followed, A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the th thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, there was a testing probation of character to her as well as to all others. That's what we see in Psalm 42.10 and elsewhere. There's also several places where there's a dismissiveness. Master, your mother and brethren are outside. And he almost says, what's that to me? Here, these are my brethren. There's almost a dismissiveness there. Same thing we saw at the wedding at Cana. See, her misgivings and doubts is implied during the accompanying his brethren as if enthusiasm was carrying him too far. That's in Mark and John. Moving on, on verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world, John says, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Here's a clear response to the prevalent Gnostic teaching. Now, I don't want to confuse you. The term Gnostic really gets applied to these people a century later, but we're using that term because it fits, okay? They're not contemporaneous. It's a little, there's a little... There's some issues there, but anyway. But anyway, they were teaching that Jesus was not really a person, just a phantom. That when he walked, he didn't leave a footprint. And I love to point out that's scriptural. There were places that he didn't leave footprints. They're recorded in three Gospels. When he's walking on water, of course. I'm being a little flippant there. I believe in the spiritual gifts, minus flippancy. Okay. Christ is come. In the Greek, this, it's, this is present and continuous tense that's used here. Jesus Christ had come and still exists in the flesh. He always, and we, that's why we believe, we believe he, he's in the flesh today. In the Old Testament, Zechariah 12, 10, I, 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 they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That implies he still has those scars. The only man-made things in heaven are scars. In uh, Revelation 5, when John is confronted with the Lamb as it had been slain, that implies he still uh, uh, he wears those injuries as a badge of honor. As a, as a, uh, his, the marks of his humiliation are the marks of his glory. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, he emphasizes this. He says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right up front, the Word. 
in the sermon that we call 1 John, that we're going to get to later, he opens with a similar emphasis, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. Our, word, our, our, our hands have handled. See, the Pharisees were the conservatives of Jesus' day, and the Sadducees were the liberals. So think of the Pharisees, they're the law keepers. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, they're the modernists or the liberals. Both of them, by the way, are in trouble. It's interesting that the Sadducees were the greatest enemies that Christ had and were the main instigators of the persecution of the early church. The Pharisees with the Sadducees were the leaders of the persecution of the Lord Jesus, especially the crucifixion, of course. But after the death of the Lord, most of the Pharisees dropped the whole affair. They seemed to have lost interest. But uh, in fact, many of the Pharisees became Christians, we learned in Acts chapter 3 and 4. I can't find any place in the Scripture where a Sadducee came to faith. I think that's interesting. If you've got, an ex if you've got someone who's legalistic, you can deal with that because Christ paid the price. You can deal with that. But if you come to a liberal who doesn't believe the Bible in the first place, uh, not much of a score, apparently. A Pharisee named Nicodemus was converted, as were many of the priests obedient to the faith. There were many priests. That means they're Pharisees. There's no account of Scripture of a Sadducee ever coming to Christ for salvation. The acid test of Sadducees was the resurrection, as it is today among so-called liberals. The prevalent Gnostic teachings would have been a disconcerting problem for Mary, of course. Why should she be, have any, be immune to doubts and misgivings, of course? Anyway, moving on. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's a deceiver and antichrist. That word antichrist is antichristo. And the, it's not a an antichrist. The, the Greek has a definite article. He's really saying the antichrist. The prefix anti really means instead of, not just against. Both are true. When we think of Antichrist, well, he's against Christ. The actual Greek term means in the place of Christ, by the way. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.